feel very positive about lots of things, you know, about the way things have gone and, you know, how working with people has been great and, you know, lovely. Um, I mean, the only thing that keeps me awake at night is politicians, you know, and I find it's always, I've always found that difficult, you know, that sort of how we interact with politicians and how we influence them and politics is, is, is difficult, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, but I mean, that throughout the last, you know, many years, the politicians have been the difficult thing for me. Drugs. Rates. Quality of life. Recovery. Harm reduction. Advocacy. Policy. Treatment. Stigma. Drugs Uncut. The Scottish Drugs Forum podcast. Welcome to Drugs Uncut. The Scottish Drugs Forum podcast, which is a space for informal yet informed conversation around drug-related issues in Scotland. Every year on the 1st of December, we pause and take time to reflect on World AIDS Day. The day is an opportunity to raise awareness of HIV-related issues, show support for people living with HIV, and to commemorate those who have died from an AIDS-related illness. In Scotland, since 2015, there has been an ongoing outbreak of HIV among people who inject drugs in Glasgow and the surrounding areas. This is the largest outbreak of HIV in Scotland since the 1980s, where Edinburgh was at the epicentre of infection amongst people who use drugs. We thought it fitting then to discuss this period of time with someone who was there, at the forefront of supporting people with drug problems during this particularly challenging time. On today's show, we're delighted to have Dr Roy Robertson. Roy's been a GP in Edinburgh since 1980, is a professor of addiction medicine and was a member of the UK's Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs for 10 years. Now, I, I've been looking over your, uh, your, your bio, Roy, and I'm not gonna lie, it, it covers such a wide range and variety from GP, apothecary to the Queen, professor of addiction medicine, uh, harm reduction pioneer. So what I'm gonna do is I'm actually gonna let you introduce yourself. Um, so it, it, especially particularly for the, uh, for the listeners that are, that are a bit further afield from Scotland that might not have heard of some of your work. Well, hello. Well, thank you very much. Um, well, I, I, I mean, what I usually say when I'm asked to introduce myself is I'm a GP in Edinburgh, and, and that's what I've been doing for the last 40 years. So, I mean, that's where where most of my energies have gone, and um, and that has been, and we'll talk about it, I hope, during the meeting. That's um, uh, been a great pleasure and a privilege to do that. Um, I mean, I do... The, the spin-offs from that has been a, a research interest. So, I mean, I've been very lucky to be able to combine my clinical work with research interests. Um, and that has taken me into sort of contact with the university and academics. And and, and that uh, has been, again, a really fabulous of my career, being able to speak and interact and meet with uh, a whole range of national and international contributors on the subject of addiction and drug dependence. Um, and of course, during that meeting with patients from all over the world, and, and that has been um, hugely sort of uh, interesting and energizing. Um, so that, that's, I mean, it's a very clinical background and the research has been in collaboration with, with people who have proper qualifications for research. So I've been very lucky to work with colleagues. Um, and, um, and, you know, uh, the, the political interest has been another area which has I've been drawn into with guidelines and you know that sort of thing that uh, that clinicians get involved with, um, which is probably the most frustrating part of it, you know, trying to influence politicians. But but again, you know, I think an important area of work. Fantastic, and we will cover uh, a few bits of those areas of work uh, throughout this conversation. And of course, joined by the usual. Uh, 
hosts of the show as well. Kirsten Horsburgh, Austin Smith, my colleagues at SDF, obviously I'm Andy Coffey, comms officer here as well. How are you guys getting on as well? How, how are you feeling after the little break since our, since our last podcast? Yeah, good. Thanks. It's uh, it's been a while, so I feel feeling a bit rusty. But who better than Roy to get us all back on track? I think, uh, Roy, I first, I think you were probably uh, one of the first people I met in my first year working with Scottish Drugs Forum through the the National Forum on drug related deaths, and uh, pro- I'm probably still scarred by some of your comments you made to me in some of those meetings, but. <laughs> <laughs> school teacher bring, uh, rings a bell. I'm sure I was described as a school teacher, and uh, that we should minute the expressions on Kirsten's face during these meetings. <laughs> we can interpret those positively. A baptism of fire. Some of us have uh, partners who are school teachers, so uh, it's not it's not a bad a bad occupation, really. And how are you, Austin? Um, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm enjoying the opportunity to speak to people. I've uh, been on my own working away uh, for large parts of the summer, so it's always good to chat. Um, and we've had a, quite a productive time doing a, a few things and quite a lot of webinaring. So uh, podcasting is great. People can't see your face, uh, can't see the physical similarities by different members of the, of the panel. But. <laughs> yeah. And and in reference to that, if you've been to a webinar, you'll realise that both me and Austin uh, are are now bald. Well, Austin, Austin bald for a, a little bit longer than me, and, and and my time at SDF has obviously contributed to that. And we both have glasses and a beard. So, so Roy, you've you've got the glasses, uh, not bald or or the beard, but you know it's okay. You'll you'll get the uniform one day. Yeah, well, I'm hoping nobody was confusing it that I was looking like part of this team either. <laughs> So I suppose, as as uh, you've mentioned there, Roy, you've been working in the field um, as a GP in Edinburgh for the past 40 years, and I suppose that's a kind of sensible place to kind of start this conversation. Well, I suppose, uh, Roy, you were, you were there at the beginning uh, when it must have become apparent uh, to you and colleagues about uh, a change in drug use uh, and the increase in heroin use and heroin injecting amongst your, the, the community you serve. Uh, how does that feel as a GP to suddenly realise uh, there's a serious change in people's health conditions and their behaviours? Uh, what's the community reaction to that? And uh, some of the stigma those people must have borne, uh, particularly in those early days. And then obviously that very quickly, uh, the realisation that there was an HIV uh, outbreak of considerable proportions in Edinburgh in those days. Yeah, well, it is interesting thinking back, isn't it? Be- I mean, at the time, you know, things are different when you look back. I mean, it's easy, you know, people write history, don't they? And they sort of say, you know, the French Revolution did this and the consequences of that. And, you know, and then there was the American Revolution. And, you know, it's it's clearer, it's easier to see it, looking back um, some of how things emerged and the consequences. And, and I think that's important because at the time, you know, when you're actually at the outset of something, you don't know what's going to happen next. And I mean, when we were seeing people in 1980 or 1979, I was working in the Northern General Hospital and I met this young woman who was a drug user who was in because of a chest and asthma and pneumonia, I think she had. And she showed me injection sites. And, you know, I was fascinated and amazed. And, you know, the first time I'd really had one-to-one contact with a patient with a heroin addiction problem. And I had no idea what to do, but I mean, you know, it was, I was quite entertained by it in a professional sense. You know, I thought this is a challenge. It was interesting, you know, spoke to my consultant, said, what are we going to do for this poor girl um, or this poor woman? You know, she's really struggling. You know, she was 
severely withdrawing. And he said, give her some heroin and kick her out. And so, you know, I was kind of amazed, you know, but we gave her some heroin, uh, which was, you know, in retrospect, not legal and not, um, you know, we weren't allowed to do that. And, um, and, and I told her to come and see me, you know, and we, I would keep in touch. And of course, I never did. And she never came back. But that was the first instance. And then a few months later, I was in this general practice where I subsequently got a job. And there were lots of patients, similar cases, you know, young people um, with rejection side problems, coming in with abscesses, um, talking about their addiction as a sort of add-on to the consultation. You know, they come in to talk about something else. And then, oh, by the way, you know, they've got this sort of addiction problem. Or you would see they had injection sites. And then over the next year or so, it slowly emerged that we had a caseload. You know, we had a significant caseload of young people, very young people, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-olds who were using heroin and who were getting, you know, problems. And, uh, and... And even at the time, you know, we thought, well, you know, is, I mean, is this important? I mean, we spoke to our consultant colleagues and they said, oh, yeah, well, um, you know, we don't really have the capacity to see them at the hospital. You know, we're you know, far too busy. And by the way, our methadone program doesn't really work. You know, we're not taking on any new patients. We've got 30 or 40 patients in the methadone program. We've been there forever and we don't really feel that it's it's having much impact. So we're actually going to close it down. And over the next you know, 12, 24 months, they did close down the, the, the methadone program, the only methadone program in, in, in uh, Lothian, in our part of Scotland, and, uh, and said, well, would we, you know, as a GP practice, because we seem to be interested in people who have drug problems, would we take on these patients, you know? And we said, well, no, we never prescribed methadone before. I mean, we can't do that. You know, are we allowed to do that? And, you know, so it was all, I mean, very basic, very early stuff. Um, and we were prescribing antidepressants, prescribing Valium, um, but mostly not prescribing anything, but just telling people, you know, well, address your abscess and, you know. And um, so over that period of time, things were very slow to emerge. And looking back at case notes, it's interesting. I did this the other day, look back at some case notes of patients that I saw around about that time. And, and they were full of sort of the recurring problems, me just basically arguing with this patient about why they're not going to stop using drugs and seeing them sometimes two or three times a week, you know, and feeling, I was obviously feeling supportive, you know, that there was I in a sort of rather paternalistic role, sort of giving them good advice about what they should do with their lives. And they were on a different planet completely, you know. Um, and prescribing Valium, prescribing Trazolam, you know, another benzodiazepine we used to prescribe. And then I spoke to Dr. Antebi. I don't know if you remember Dr. Antebi. He was a consultant in Glasgow. He was a great chap. And he said to me, Look, just give him some methadone, you know. And I said, can I do that? You know, am I allowed to do that? And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. Anybody can do that, you know. And so we started prescribing methadone. Um, but the, but, you know, in a group practice, it's quite difficult because, you know, my partners were, we, there was two of us who were younger partners and the older ones didn't really want to be involved. They didn't really want to be involved with drug users. They felt that they were just a pest and just um, causing trouble. So there's all that going on. And we were sort of emerging sort of ideas. And we were prescribing other things like dihydrocodone, you know, codeine, dihydrocodone. And we thought, well, we would keep our heads below the radar and just prescribe dihydrocodone. Um, so we're giving people truckloads of dihydrocodone 
um, in a very disorganized way, sort of um, on short term prescriptions, week by week by week, thinking that, well, we will reduce it next week, they'll come off. And of course, you know, all of this is totally naive, isn't it, from what we know now. And it took a long time to really get into the the, the, the sort of to uh, begin to understand that we were actually prescribing maintenance treatment. That's what we were prescribing. We weren't prescribing withdrawals. We weren't treating withdrawals. And when we did say to people, okay, you know, we've treated you for so long, you're not doing very well, you know, we're going to cut you down and um, that's it. You know, they would go, they would disappear, they would go somewhere else, you know, they would go and get a prescription somewhere else. And then a few months later, they'd come back again and say, oh, the other doctor they saw on the other side of town, I kicked them off his list, now can they come back to you? So it was, I mean, it was all very fragmented. And and I, and I guess the, the, the important sort of historical thing at that time was hepatitis B. I mean, and that was what really got us more energized. We we had people, we had an epidemic of hepatitis B and people were coming in with acute jaundice. And mostly these people weren't ill. They were 16, 17, 18 year olds and some 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 of them a bit older, but and they were coming in with acute hepatitis, you know, jaundice, ill, you know, feeling sick, feeling rotten. And you'd sort of say, well, you've got jaundice, you've got hepatitis. And I mean, people didn't get it. They sort of said, oh, it's just hep. You know, everybody gets that, don't they? And it goes away. And by and large, that's right. It does go away in most people. You know, they get an acute illness and they get over the illness. Some people get ill, you know, some people get liver failure, some people die in the acute phase, but most people don't. And so it just became a sort of norm in the community that people got hepatitis and you got a bit of jaundice. But of course, you know, I'd say to people, well, you realize why you're getting it. You know, you're injecting, you're sharing needles, you know, you're getting contaminated from somebody else and it's been passed on. And one chap said to me, he said, you know, but I've got all yellow. Why have I got all yellow in my eyes? And I said, well, you're injecting drugs and it's going, he said, but it's in my eyes. I injected my arm. And this chap, you know, really had no idea about blood circulating around his body and, you know, infection getting into his system and viruses and all that. So we're dealing with a very naive, very, you know, sad population who were living hand to mouth and, I mean, and it was a bit like that train spotting. I mean, you know, I mean, Irving Welsh did us all a great favor, didn't he, by by telling the story, and and it really really resonated with me. That story was very much what was happening. You know, very young kids sometimes having a great time. You know, sometimes careering around. You know, sort of living in this wild sort of um, reckless sort of outlaw existence um, and living day to day. And getting high on drugs and, and and that was exactly what it was like in those first early years and the consequences of it all weren't apparent you know the i mean there were deaths there were of course there was sudden deaths and you know it was amazing how you know young people can sort of ignore the fact that they're doing something quite so risky but there was people being found dead in houses there was people you know being left on the stair because they'd overdosed and died in the house so they would shove them out in the stair and call the police um, and the police would phone up and say, we've got one of your drug users, you know, he's dead and he's in the house and will you give us a death certificate? And I'd sort of say, what do you mean give you a death certificate? This is a forensic case, you know, get the team down there, get them, you know, do a post-mortem. And they sort of say, well, there's no need, you know, he's um, no suspicious circumstances. And I say, like a 21 year old found on his own, dead in the house, covered with blood, nobody else there. 
no suspicious circumstances. You know, I don't think so. You know, please, um, to, you know, I'm not going to sign a death certificate. You know, this is a police case. And you go to the, you know, I'd go to the mortuary and they would sometimes do postmortems and sometimes wouldn't. You know, they'd say, you know, well, well, you know, it's obvious the cause of death. It was obvious the cause of death. You know, it was a drug overdose. Um, and that went on uh, for a long time. And, you know, it's difficult to tell when we became aware of HIV, but um, HIV was the game changer, wasn't it? I mean, that was the the thing when everybody, you know, the politicians, the police, the, the community, everybody got alerted to the seriousness of the problem. But we didn't really, we didn't know about HIV in Edinburgh until 1985, until George Bath and um, others, uh, John Pizzer and others, did some tests. They just tested this new kit they had, and they had this new ELISA um, virus testing kit, uh, which tested for HIV, and they thought they'd, they'd test it. So they got some blood samples from A&E and the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh and tested them and found them all positive. Um, and they couldn't believe it. They thought the test was wrong. They thought there was some mistake. But they published a letter in The Lancet um, uh, in September, I think, 1985. Um, and, and that really got everybody alerted or people that were interested. Um, so Philip Wellesby, infectious diseases consultant, and I um, again got a whole lot of blood samples from patients we knew. These patients were drug users that I've described who'd been... Um, we'd been taking blood from to test for hepatitis and the blood was stored in the lab. The lab keep blood samples uh, for future reference. So we went back and tested a whole load of those and out of 164, I think 87 were positive and nobody could believe it. I mean, this was a real game changer. Um, and we held on to that information for a bit whilst we wrote up the paper and sent it to the British Medical Journal. Uh, but but the news sort of leaked out. It was interesting. The press started hovering around, and we had a lot of um, people wanting data and wanting in, in information. And I mean, I, we kept saying, "Well, this is embargoed. You know, it's going to be published in the journal. You know, in the international journal." Um, and uh, but the, the pressure grew. You know, as the interest grew uh, nationally, and eventually it was published anyway in February 1986. And there was a sort of a wave of interest that was quite overwhelming uh, for us as well as our patients. You know, TV crews arrived from all over the country and from all over the world, actually. We had loads of um, press interest. I mean, 10, 20, 30 calls a day sometimes from, uh, from journalists um, from all over the place, all sorts of magazines and journals and newspapers. Um, and... We told the story again and again and again about this group of drug users and um, and we never, one of the rules we made at the beginning was we'd never involve any of our patients. We wouldn't facilitate any direct interviews or contacts and I'm glad we did that because in a way that was self-protection as well, but it was also protecting our patients. But what the, what the journalists do as they do was just go down to the shopping centre down the road and round up a few of the boys and say, you know, tell us the story. And they'd pay them some money and they'd film, you know, they'd do a bit of filming, which is fine. But, you know, they're a very naive group and were, you know, were, were the, the press and the media, whilst we all admire them for, you know, interrogating everything, they can be very intrusive and very, um, uh, I mean, quite ruthless at times. And they would put people on media shows and invite people to 
um, go to sort of live shows without warning that they're going to interrogate them about HIV and all sorts of things. So it was, I mean, very interesting time. And academically, it was very interesting because <clears throat> there was obviously a whole load of things we felt we should do. And the obvious thing for us in Edinburgh was and the fact we had men and women who were HIV infected, which at that time was quite unusual. Most of the reports um, from particularly North America, but around Europe were in the gay community amongst um, uh, men who had sex with men. And that was where all the data was. That was where all the information was. And the only other place was New York, you know, where they had had an epidemic of HIV infection among drug users in 82, 83. Um, although remembering that we didn't have the test until 85, nobody knew it was there until 85. But looking back, they could see that they had had this HIV epidemic in New York and they'd been dealing with the consequences, cases of HIV. So, it's, I mean, it's kind of difficult to tell the story and get it to get it clear. But I mean, it, it is important to remember that when we got those positive tests, when we found all those people were positive for HIV, none of them were ill with HIV. I mean, they'd mostly seroconverted. They'd been infected in 82, 83, 84, um, and they hadn't got ill yet. So we had a positive test, but nobody was ill. So in the community, nobody really felt the ill. And we didn't know. We didn't know how quickly it would progress. Or, uh, and I mean, the common knowledge about it was that People, if they had, if once you got infected, you might be asymptomatic for a year or 18 months. You might then get HIV infection. Some people would die of it and some people would recover. And that was as much as we knew about HIV, um, which is staggering, really, because within three or four years, we knew that everybody who had HIV would, would eventually progress if they were untreated and they would all die if they all progressed. And there was no cure at that time. Um, and there was no people that just remained asymptomatic or there was very few cases. Um, so we were faced with this positive caseload who were still quite well, but who were, I mean, as far as we knew then, were all going to progress eventually and probably all die of HIV. And so the pressure was, tension was arising and um, people were getting more and more concerned about it. And the other big thing, as I said, was the fact that we had men and women, heterosexual men and women. And so the risk, there was a risk to children, uh, to babies born from mothers with HIV. And there was a risk to the whole heterosexual community. And that was what really got the government interested. And even the, the rather unpleasant Thatcher government um, were, um, were suddenly prepared to listen to the fact that this could go heterosexual. It could become a viral a heterosexual epidemic like was seen in Africa and was still just emerging in Africa. Our knowledge of the African epidemic was still pretty basic, but people knew that there was a, a plague type thing going on in Africa, uh, but they hadn't quite realized the, the, the enormity of it all and the extent of it all. Um, so here were we with the possibility that we could that a heterosexual epidemic could emerge in the young drug users and that could be the vector into the heterosexual community. So all of a sudden it wasn't just those rather odd gay men or it wasn't all these sort of troublesome drunk drug users or, you know, sort of bad people. 
it was normal people. It was, um, you know, our sons and daughters and, you know, everybody was at risk. So that became serious for the politicians. And, um, and, and sadly, well, not sadly, but I mean, very positively that generated the, the, the sort of response that we now know was important. And, and, uh, but it, it was only because it was felt that these drug users were, these pesky drug users were a threat to the, to the rest of the population that things got going. Yeah, I, I, I remember that, Roy. I, I was 21 in 1986 and very much uh, part of that heterosexual population that was was absolutely uh, traumatised by this news. I, I, and my, my memory is, your memories are sometimes false, but my memory is exactly that, that there was these people uh, who were marginalised in society and there was this interesting plague amongst them, but there was actually no compassion around that at all. There was... Uh, and generally or no real political interest in it. And I can remember the very early activism in America and how that was reported, uh, particularly around uh, gay men and uh, gay rights. But there was there was no interest in it or, or concern about it until uh, it might affect us, as it were. And it, people talked about it leaking out of certain populations into other populations by whatever vectors or whatever. Um, and all of that... Uh, and and from my perspective now it shows you how old I am or how how long ago these things were. There's a very different sense. Uh, and we were talking earlier about medicine. I think medicine's different now. I would hope now that people would uh, want to learn from their patients more readily than people did. Um, you know, rather than uh, thinking this is ex- extraordinary behaviour that we can't understand. But to your your credit, you you st- you stuck with those those patients. What I was wondering was, in terms of communicating with those patients about HIV, given the level of knowledge, the public knowledge about it, what were their concerns in terms of, you know, is it, is it possible to concern, be concerned about your, your own long-term health uh, when you're, you're living in that, that situation uh, and, and to reflect on your, your own behaviour or... And also, what does it do for your for your mental health and your sense of well being that you are or may well be be ill uh, with a, an untreatable uh, condition, and you may have passed that on to your partner or people you uh, who you uh, regard as friends and uh, companions. I think honestly, Austin, I think that's a really important question, and I think it, it it really is. It's very hard. I mean, you deal with people who have. Uh, use drugs and, and we, we all do but it's it's very hard to put yourself in a position of somebody I mean it's like putting yourself in a position of somebody with cancer or somebody with a terminal illness and you know we sit there and you know we're very sort of compassionate we think we are we think we're very insightful but I mean who knows what it must be like to be you know to be told you've got a terminal illness or to be told that you've got an uncurable disease and I, I, I don't think there's anything unique about HIV or or, or any of these things, it's it's all part of the same thing. And and, and I, I, but I think the unusual thing about that population is they were a young population, you know, because you're used to dealing with, uh, as the nature of things, more serious things than older people. And to have a very critically endangered, very young population was quite different because their approach was different. You know, their approach was. You know, you might describe it as reckless, or you might describe it as uncaring, but you know, they weren't going to just sort of accept that they were going to die, or they were going to, you know, they were going to carry on. And and in many ways, they're much more positive, much more, you know, prepared to sort of challenge things. And 
you know, less prepared to listen to a sort of gloomy forecast. Um, so it, it is, I think it was a really interesting, and it, it is a really interesting caseload. I mean, I think it's a, a wonderful caseload to work with, a wonderful group of people to work with, um, because their 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 expectations are different, their challenges are different, their um, their approach to things are different, and they often do, like you say, they challenge conventional medicine, and they sort of say, well, okay, you might say, you know, I need to do this, but oh well, the hell with that, I'm not going to. You know, and why should I? And you sort of think, well, yeah, why should he? You know, why should she? And and I remember one lady saying to me, you know, I said to her, you know, she didn't haven't had, I, I, I can't know what it was, something about a cervical smear. That was it. And she hadn't had a cervical smear. And she said, you know, do you want to know my list of problems? She, she said, so she listed 10 problems. And she said, you know, I'm homeless. I've got five kids. I've got a husband who's, you know, got a drug problem who's violent. You tell me I've got HIV infection. Um, you know, and she went down this list of things. She said, I don't think I need a survival smear, you know. And and you sort of think, well, you know, we're getting our priorities wrong. You know, we are, you know, you need to deal with people, their immediate problems, but also with a view to managing their future problems. And I mean, there's no point in sort of saying, well, you know, we want you to stop using drugs because, you know, you, you, you could do all these great things in the future. I mean, if somebody's homeless or somebody is, you know, is, is facing violence or, you know, is impoverished in, in many ways. And so I think I think it was a huge learning process. And, and I think you're right, Austin, the, 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 the profession has learned a lot, not just from this, but from, you know, from a, a different approach towards um, patients and, uh, and dealing with people um, in the last 30 years. And we do deal with people differently. Um, and we do listen, I think, more than we did. Although, you know, constraints always mean that you can listen as much as you like. But if you don't have the facilities and you don't have, you can sort of say, well, look, I'm terribly sorry, but, you know, the waiting list is, you know, 12 months to you know, have whatever it is you're, you're needing done. So it needs to be matched, you know, people's expectations need to be matched with the reality of a proper service. And at that time, the service was, and you know, in my view, still is not good enough, you know, and it was appalling then. And it's, it's, you know, I think we're in a phase now where we're going backwards and we're going into another phase of, um, you know, political sort of um, ignorance and sort of um, hostility towards the drug problem that uh, really was very reminiscent of what was happening in the 1980s. Um, uh, and, you know, we, the drug scene changes, you know, they evolve. I mean, I, I, in a rather sort of naive, sort of optimistic way, I've always thought that, or I've always hoped that things would improve and, you know, we would gradually get a handle on drug use and we would gradually get services and gradually education would kick in, young people wouldn't use drugs, you know, and, you know, I mean, all these things that we, we tell each other all the time, that's the way to approach managing the drug problem. But sadly, the drug scene seems to reinvent itself, doesn't it? You know, I mean, you move from being a mainly heroin problem to being a mixed heroin, a mixed drug problem with lots of things that we, we a variety of different drugs now. Roy, I just wanted to pick up on what you were saying about, obviously, back um, when the Thatcher government and the responses that we know now were things like needle and syringe programmes, wider provision of methadone prescribing, and also that, you know, that there have been massive moves towards getting HIV under control and preventative measures 
But what we've seen in Glasgow over the last five years has been a massive increase in the numbers of people being um, affected by HIV again, particularly among people who inject drugs from sharing injecting equipment. So there have been a number of measures introduced and a number of measures suggested in order to get that under control. So what we have currently clearly isn't working and perhaps links into some of the discussion you had there about the, the political side. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on around the conversation about a drug consumption room being required to support individuals who are injecting and um, becoming infected with HIV um, and also whether um, heroin assisted treatment and other options would be um, suitable for trying to contain the the virus as well. Yeah, gosh, that's a big question, Kirsten, isn't it? You know, that's a, a lot of questions. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the I mean, one of the early lessons in the 86 or whenever it was, when we had that McClelland report, you know, Brian McClelland was director of blood transfusion. He was commissioned by the chief medical officer in Scotland to do a report. And it was a wonderful report. It was only 16 pages. I mean, can you imagine a, a national government report being only 16 pages with 10 recommendations or something? And it took us about three meetings to drop this, this report. And that was it. And we did it. And, and it was recommending methadone, it was recommending needles and syringes exchange, it was recommending uh, social work getting involved, it was recommending children and families um, activating, it was recommending the education system, to, you know, all these things were uh, pretty obvious now, but it needed to be said at the time. Um, but the, the first meeting, we had this great argument about whether or not we would give people maintenance methadone or reduce, reduce their dose and get them off drugs. And then the other thing was, would you give needles and syringes or would you treat them with methadone, one or the other? And then it very quickly became apparent you wouldn't just do one thing, you'd do it all. And it was uh, Rosemary Ansel, who was from the WHO, who I met, uh, she worked in Paris and she was fantastic. You know, she sort of laughed and said, she wasn't at that meeting, but she was in another meeting, and sort of said, you don't just do one thing, you know. She sort of said, you do it all, you know, and stop arguing. Um, and that, that was a real you know, insightful comment for me. And I, that's where we are now, I think, again. Um, you know, we sort of see, well, do we try and get people off drugs or do we try and put them on maintenance or do we give them needles and syringes and condone their, their bad behaviour or do we give them, you know, some special treatment or do we send them to detox or do we send them to rehab? You know, and you, you need all these facilities, you know, and and not just for different people, but for the same person. The same person throughout their life needs needles and syringes sometimes. Then other times they need maintenance treatment. Other times they need rehab. Other times they need, you know, intensive care. And I mean, other diseases, you know, I mean, you wouldn't think a respiratory physician would say, well, all I do is inhalers. You know, I don't do, you know, chest x-rays and I don't do... You know, they, they've got a range of interventions, and, and that's what we've failed to do. We've failed to realise, I mean, well, we haven't failed, but we just haven't financed it. And we haven't realised that we need an intensive care unit for drug users. We need a daycare unit for drug users. We need, you know, maintenance, you know, sort of community treatment. We need ongoing, you know, resources, and, and we need all these things um, to be financed properly. So in answer to your question, we need heroin-assisted treatment. I mean, it's so stupid to think that we don't. We need 
um, safer injecting rooms. I mean, why not? I mean, this is like the intensive care unit for the drug users. You know, so when people are really, really struggling, you know, when they're they're dying essentially of a disease, you know, or an illness, then you, you put them in intensive care. But they don't stay there forever, and they don't live there. They don't. They go in for a few days or a few weeks or um, sometimes longer, and and then they go away. You know, they go on to the next part of their problem or their lives. And we need the maintenance treatment. And we need that to be completely seamless and completely you know, easy to manage and easy to use. Um, and we need you know, new things. I mean, there are very positive things, you know, these new injections, depot injections, buprenorphine, looking to be very positive and really a bit of a, another game changer, you know, how you manage people and how they, how they, they manage themselves. Um, so you need all these, it's a spectrum of, of, of facilities that you need. Um, yeah. And if you compare it to any other condition, um, and I mean, for many years, we only had one drug, we had methadone, that was it. You know? And we would tinker around with dihydrocodeine and give people, you know, handfuls of dihydrocodeine and get heavily criticized for that. And I mean, I, it wasn't good treatment, it isn't good treatment, but it's, you know, it's giving some alternative. And then buprenorphine came along, which was great. You know, we had another alternative, so people, you didn't have to get put down this single track, um, or you know, be uh, for one reason or another didn't have to take methadone, and you know, and that's what we need. We need a range of condition, a range of treatments. And yeah, absolutely. And and also we have a significant issue with the numbers of people accessing treatment. We know that treatment is a protective factor against drug-related deaths. But we have a huge number of people in Scotland not accessing that treatment. And what do you think we need to do in order to get more people in treatment? And why is it that you think that that we're that we're missing that? What are what are we not doing right? Okay, okay. So Kirsten, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. GPs need to, need to get their act together. I mean, I I I I'm a GP, and I think general practice is one of the the jewels in the crown of the health service. And I mean, everywhere I go, I mean, not that I've done much international traveling professionally, but everywhere I do go, people are trying to invent a system like our general practice system. You know, everywhere you go to Croatia and they're trying to get a system of treating people in the community, you know, with all their different problems, you know, and uh, link up with other parts of the service. You go to North America and it's not good, you know, they don't have, you know, people go to specialist care. So you go to a gynecologist or you go to a physician or you go to a pediatrician or you go to, you know, we, I mean, our general practice is, is fantastic. And I mean, I really believe that. Um, but the trouble is that it's it's sort of overwhelmed. It's sort of, um, it tries to do everything and it's it probably tries to do too much. But it seems to me the obvious place to manage a condition like addictions and like drug problems, because these are people who are essentially, you know, essentially well most of the time. They're living at home, they're living in a, in a community, um, but they've got multiple problems, you know, and it's not just the fact they need medically assisted treatment or opiate agonist treatment, um, but they, you know, they need the things that we all need, you know, they need monitoring, they need, um, uh, they need advice about whatever, you know, whatever is happening to them. Um, and they need to contact with local services and they need to some somebody to be coordinating all that, you know, somebody to sort of say, well, yeah, you do need a chest x-ray, you know, you've got to, you know, you've been smoking too much and, you know, or it could be pneumonia or, 
you do need somebody to sort of say, well, by the way, you know, whilst you're you were getting your treatment for all this, um, you know, we need to think about your other health problems and we need to, you know, address your and you're in a family, you know, your family has got um, medical issues that you know that we are in a position to to talk about and deal with. So I think this, um, the, I mean, medicine has tended towards, and it's probably a victim of our own success because we get more better at treating certain things. People tend to become, you know, we have an expert unit for cancer, we have an expert unit for um, coronary artery uh, angiography. I mean, I mean, these these are fantastic. You know, I mean, if I get chest pain today, I would hope to be in the Royal Infirmary within an hour. Um, and be in the cath lab and have a, um, a stent put in and, you know, probably my life saved within a couple of hours and back home tomorrow, you know, and that's extraordinary. And so we have amazing, but I mean, the cardiologists are not interested in, you know, they're far too busy doing that to be interested in somebody who might have a drug problem or might have a, an ECG abnormality because of his, um, his methadone treatment. So we're all in, in silos a bit, you know, and general practice is the obvious place to try and bring it all together. Um, and, and sadly, um, in answer to your question, I think we general practice hasn't really stepped up and taken that on. And there's various sort of political and financial and organisational reasons for that. Um, but I mean, I think that's one of the things that I feel that we've failed or I've failed in the last um, 20 or 30 years to convince colleagues that actually it's their job. This is their job um, to to manage drug use. And it isn't difficult. I mean, it isn't difficult. Um, I, I, I mean, and it's it's incredibly rewarding. Uh, and it's, I mean, I saw, I don't know, I can't remember, I did 20 or 30 phone calls yesterday and saw half a dozen patients and probably six, six or seven of them were drug users. And in a way, they're indistinguishable from the other patients. It's another phone call, it's another condition, but it's easily dealt with. You know, we know where we are. I mean, I know them, they know me, you know, they know um, what, you know, what the treatment is, standard treatment. And they've got, you know, they may or may not be stable, but, you know, that's what we'll be talking about. And, um, and, and we have these links. So, I mean, I don't manage them on my own. I have a close link with my consultant colleagues, my specialist colleagues in the, the local specialist um, addiction service. Um, so we are closely linked to that and I'm closely linked to the local hospital, to the, the Western General Hospital down the road so I can get people an x-ray the same day. I can speak to you know, a consultant in physician and I can organise all that. But that notion of shared care, Kirsten, just to uh, to before I forget, is it seems to me to be the way. So not just GPs. I, I'm not just blaming GPs. I think that shared care is the is the key. Yeah, and I think that links exactly to what you were saying. It's not just about every single treatment and service needs to be on offer to people, but it's also that every single person who could be involved in supporting people needs to be involved as well, so that it's everybody's business. And I think where it's been quite striking for me uh, with the coronavirus pandemic is that um, we also have a public health emergency in the number of drug-related deaths that we have in Scotland. But when you compare the response to that public health emergency with the coronavirus, coronavirus pandemic, it's, you know, undeniably uh, completely the opposite approach. So, I mean, what do you feel that the drug death situation in Scotland is being treated as an emergency? 
Christian, I, I don't like being horrible to people, uh, but I mean, I do find politicians absolutely, I mean, I, I really, I find it really difficult. I, I just don't know. I mean, it, and I don't think it is just me. I mean, politics is difficult. It's a murky business, isn't it? And it's, it's a business of keeping your seat and keeping your electorate happy and, you know, trying to juggle hundreds of different demands. And, you know, I, I wouldn't want to, I mean, I, in some ways, I admire politicians because they, they do an undoable job, you know, for a limited time. And then uh, something happens and they, they, they suddenly stop. And they, they, but uh, but I mean, I, I'm really disappointed, really thoroughly um, depressed. If I would allow myself to get depressed about anything, it would be about politics and um, I, the politics of drug addiction um, over the last 40 years. And we seem to have learned nothing and we seem to have... Um, being gone from crisis to crisis, to report to report, you know, here's another report about anthrax, here's a report about another clostridium infection, here's a report about drug-related deaths. And the politicians seem to write it out by, you know, setting up another committee and, um, you know, having another series of, of recommendations um, which they don't finance properly and they don't. And it's not, none of it's joined up, none of it's strategic thinking, none of it is is long-term um, uh, strategy. And, and I, I think that is very disappointing. Um, and, and I think even the best politicians, and during the, the 1990s, you know, during the Labour governments, uh, things did improve considerably and uh, policy got, got a bit more sensible. Um, and general practice was funded, I mean, to just to, uh, I mean, that, that's a, obviously a personal sort of view, but general practice was funded properly. So um, the, the opportunities arose to do all sorts of new things. Um, but, uh, but this, you know, the current, the last 10 years have been, have been uh, absolutely hopeless in Westminster uh, approach towards um, drug using. And not just safer injecting rooms, I mean, across the board, you know, I mean, reports that I've been involved with trying to um, influence ministers on everything from benefits for, you know, for people through to housing policy, through to, you know, treatment services. I've met with, you know, complete stonewalling and, and um, uh, quite a hostile approach. We're even told by civil servants at times not to put in these words like, um, like maintenance and you know, don't talk about long-term treatments because the minister will just throw it in the bin. You know? So we've got some really difficult um, politicians. Uh, but, but, but I think it's, but it is always difficult for politicians. And I mean, it, it, and that's not just this country. You know, you see that across the, the planet, don't you? Um, far worse situations than ours. And some terrible approaches, some really uh, um, violent and vicious approaches towards drug users. Um, and... Uh, I mean, there's very few examples of, you know, places where you would say this worked well. I mean, going to Switzerland and going to um, Portugal and going to Amsterdam, which you have done over many years, and you do meet some enlightened people. You do meet some people who you make, you know, just in, in a few sentences can turn it from being a, a sort of battleground to being just a sort of normal sort of, you know, what's the problem? You know, we, of course, these people need treatment. And of course, we've got to fund it. And of course, we've got to, you know, supply the whatever is needed. Um, and it's very disappointing to, you know, to come back and find that you're constantly up against, you know, you're, you're pushing against the closing door.
I mean, that, that, I, that's useful uh, perspective in, in a sense, uh, and also in, in internally within the UK. I mean, the, the latest thing, uh, structure we have that you'll be familiar with is the Drug Death Task Force, and part of, uh, part of the work that's come out of that, and actually the most advanced thing that they're working on is uh, the, the MAT standards. Uh, it's the most progressed piece of work, and maybe the most progressive piece of work uh, from an area that you know well, um, of course, and you've you worked in the the orange book on the the guidelines, uh, the, for the clinical guidelines, and and the MAT standards builds on that uh, to to offer very practical service stuff about people getting into treatment on the day they present, uh, and people the default being for people to stay in treatment uh, as as long as. Uh, as they request it and uh, is necessary. So some of that takes some of the sting out of that political stuff. Um, have you any thoughts on, on that, that approach, on the MAT standards themselves, on the likelihood of them being implemented um, and what what the reaction is likely to be to them? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I've not been involved with the task force. And I mean, I, of course, I speak to members of the task force and speak to people. And and I mean I'm sure they're doing good work. I mean I'm, I'm sure it's it's a, a a really positive thing, and I'm sure Public Health Scotland are engaged in a huge number of fronts, aren't they? And I know that there's some really good things going on. Um, and I, I and I I'm sure positive things will come out of it, and I I do hope that uh, that these standards will be adopted. I mean I think the implementation, like you say, is the secret, isn't it? I mean, it's all very well telling each other what we should do, but if we don't do it, then, I mean, talking about things is okay, but you need to do something. Um, and we've had guidelines, the orange guidelines. Uh, for me, you know, are, are like all guidelines, they're just a sort of, you know, a sort of a bit of a roadmap. But um, I mean, I'm amazed how very few people actually read guidelines or you know, implement guidelines in their entirety. Um, and especially in, in the arena of drug dependency. Um, so I, I think, I, I mean, I, I worry that we're telling ourselves things we know already and that, you know, we're telling, we don't need to tell specialists that maintenance is the obvious thing and getting people into treatment. Uh, but we do need to give them the, 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 the situation where they can do that. We do need to give them the, the resources and um, and if we don't do that, then you can have all the guidelines and, and standards you like, and it doesn't make a blind bit of difference. Um, but uh, I, I, I mean, I, I think the service has been fragmented. You know, we were, you know, we, we've got sort of structural faults that are really difficult. I think you know, we, we don't seem to have a consensus and agreement about uh, in different areas of Edinburgh, far less different areas of you know the country. Um, and I think we should all be doing so. I think standards are really important, but everybody knows that you know, that, that, that is what is acceptable and what is recommended. Um, uh, but it, but I, 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 I hope that'll, but some of the structural problems are, you know, are, are organizational, you know, the, the, the forensic science lab is a, is, is a case in point, you know, we don't have data coming out like we should do. We don't have, um, we haven't had a report this year on um, drug-related deaths for 2019, and, and that's partly coronavirus, but it isn't just coronavirus. It's, it's to do with um, the lab closing down in Glasgow and Glasgow University closing the forensic science lab, and it's now being relocated to uh, the Scottish Police Authority, which 
in my view, is a, a retrogressive step. I mean, we we used the police authority for uh, toxicology for many years in Edinburgh, and it was hopeless. It was really no good. Um, I mean, it was fine for the criminal justice service. You know, they got what they wanted, you know, which is obviously that's what it's all about. You know, they had to, you know, have data for the courts and data for the fiscal and data for, you know, for families when there's been a drug related death. But for clinical services, it was hopeless. You know, we didn't have any access to toxicology. We didn't have quick feedback. We didn't have inside information, you know, about what was, you know, what drugs were uh, were being taken or being used in the community. And we didn't have the, we wouldn't give them access to forensic materials. So we, you know, we had to get permission from the fiscal if we wanted to find out about cases that we've been involved with. You know, I mean, that's outrageous. You know. um, so, so these structural things are going backwards. I mean, and we're, we've been trying to negotiate an add-on contract with a new police authority deal. So the Crown Office have the money to buy uh, toxicology services from the police now, um, but there's nothing, there's no money being offered or being forthcoming uh, for clinical services or for research, um, or even for National Records of Scotland. There's no recognition that these data have to be supplied um, to the, the data people and to the clinical people. So there, there are these structural things that are, again, I, it's political, you know, it's political. I mean, the politicians say, well, well, the fallback position is there's no money, oh, it's coronavirus, oh, you know, there's always something. Um, but I mean, they really do need to be funded. And I, I think that that's part of this lack of joined up service, you know, part of this sort of um, uh, poor sort of global view of, of addiction as a, as a, and we don't, in, in my sector, in the academic sector, um, we don't, I mean, we, Stirling University is doing a, a huge amount and the new uh, drug research network has been a, a bit of a game changer and generating lots of new projects. But, but you know, we don't have a, 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 a completely properly established alcohol and addiction academic unit in Scotland, um, which is incredible. I find that incredible. Um, you know, here's a country with one of the worst addiction problems in the world. And, and one of the worst drug deaths problems in the world. And, and we don't have a, an academic unit that's got all elements, you know, clinical services, links into the NHS, links into academia, and, you know, properly funded PhDs, you know, things that are ongoing, you know, um, a, a proper strategic approach towards research. So, Ray, thanks very much for all your input so far and what's been an absolutely fascinating discussion on the historical context of how we got to where we are now. However, I'm afraid to say we're closing in on the end of the show. Uh, before we do, is there anything else we haven't covered that you'd like to discuss? Well, just, I don't know, you know, I could talk all day about this, couldn't I? But I mean, I do, you know, I think it's been an extraordinary experience for me to, to manage or to be involved. I mean, I... When I say manage patients, I don't think we manage drug users at all. I think they manage us, and and I think that's been a great pleasure and privilege to to feel that you know that I'm just there to do what they want, you know. And I mean that's my job is to do exactly what they want. The only caveat I say is if it's not legal, I'm not going to do it. You know? but, but everything else, you know. Not that, anymore, anyway. That's right. <laughs> my job is just to give you you know, what facilities that are available. Um, and, and, and people, you know, sort of, 
respond to that, and, and, and that's great. But the embarrassing thing is that what I've got to give is very, is not good. I mean, it's not, it's not enough, you know, it's, it's been inadequate. And I feel that we've let this group down over many years. Um, and uh, and I, I think that's very sad. I mean, I think it's, you know, I mean, at the end of my career to be saying that sounds silly, but, you know, I think it is very sad that we've, we've serially, oh, decade by decade, let down a group of, of really vulnerable and, and sort of um, uh, demanding or people who need uh, our support. Um, and I, I just don't know why that is, because, you know, we've done well with cancer. We've done, you know, if, if you and I get cancer, we're treated well. You know, we people are nice to us. You know, people, you know, are prepared to, you know, sort of take us into care. But I mean, but I, I think we have let them down. And I think, you know, there is a huge challenge there. And I, I think, um, I mean, I was the task force well and hope that, you know, hope that Scotland can, you know, Scotland is, has led on things before, hasn't it? And I hope we can continue to do that. Yeah, thanks, Roy. And we, uh, it's been great having you on, and we massively appreciate all the work that you do um, through your practice and over the years. So, uh, it's been really interesting to have you on today. So, really pleased that we were able to capture you. If we've all failed, uh, you've certainly tried. I can say that for you, Roy. Uh, <laughs> and to thank you for that and for your contribution today. Yeah. So absolutely, that was a veritable tour de force there with uh, Dr. Roy Robertson talking us through the last forty years and. Uh, and all the issues, challenges and opportunities that have been had throughout that time. So, yeah, I just want to say thanks very much again, Roy, for, for, for joining us uh, today as well. Thanks also to everyone who joined us listening in today, wherever you are. Alongside this podcast episode, SDF has also produced a new e-learning on HIV and substance use, which can be accessed for free on the SDF training website. Just visit www.sdftraining.org.uk to sign up and take part. If you're online, why not also check out the two recent webinars SDF and Waverley Care hosted for World AIDS Day, where we looked at international and Scottish approaches to addressing localised HIV outbreaks. You can find recordings of the webinars on our YouTube page. Just search Scottish Drugs Forum webinars on YouTube and you should be able to find it. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to hit subscribe and also share it with anyone who you think may find it interesting. If you have any comment or suggestions for content, then simply just get in touch via the SDF website or get us on Twitter at SDF News. Until next time, goodbye.